Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Amanda and Michelle Kelly about their paper, Acceptance and Commitment Training in Applied Behavior Analysis, Where Have You Been All My Life? This paper and two others that we'll be discussing on the show in the next two weeks are all part of a special section of a recent publication in Behavior Analysis and Practice focused on acceptance and commitment training in applied behavior analysis. Our guests today are twin sisters who graduated from Maynooth University with a BA honors degree in psychology in 2008 and doctorate degrees in applied behavior analysis and therapy in 2011. They are both BCBADs. Where their stories diverge a little bit more is that Amanda moved from Ireland to Colorado in 2013 to pursue a role at Firefly Autism. She held a variety of leadership positions within the organization and was appointed CEO in December 2021. Michelle, on the other hand, stayed in Ireland and is a lecturer of psychology at the National College of Ireland in Dublin and supervises research students at the National College of Ireland, as well as Trinity College at Maynooth University. Without further ado, here's my interview with Amanda and Michelle Kelly. Hello, Michelle and Amanda. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, Cody. Hi, Cody. It's nice to have you both on the podcast. I do want to point out for the listeners who won't be seeing you and may not know who you are just yet, that you are twins. And so as you answer your questions, uh, it may be hard to distinguish who's saying what. I don't know how close uh, your voices are, but it may be difficult to pick one out from the other. So uh, the, the, listen- <laughs> <laughs> the listeners will have to uh, listen, especially close to see if they can pick out who is who. And so uh, sort of with that, uh, would you guys mind telling us a little bit about yourselves? I already gave one piece of personal information away, but tell us a little bit about your background and and why you're into this type of research. Yeah. Um, So um, this is Amanda here. And um, so I'm currently the CEO of Firefly Autism, which is located in Colorado. And um, I've been living in the US for almost 10 years now. Um, moved away and left left Michelle. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's it's really wonderful being here in, in the US and Colorado. And obviously, you know, Firefly is a wonderful organization. Um, I are my background, which is the same as Michelle's essentially, um, is 
relational frame theory, we both got our undergraduates and doctorates in Maynooth University in Ireland um, under the wonderful um, Dr. Um, Yvonne Barnes-Holmes and Professor Dermot Barnes-Holmes. We have essentially been thinking about relational frame theory and then also acceptance and commitment therapy and training for, I don't know, 15 years is that even right Michelle <laughs> um, so it's wonderful to be able to be in a position myself particularly to be able to apply some of those things to clinical practice yeah absolutely you know Amanda I think it probably has been about that long but I, I mean Amanda definitely is the more of an expert in the acceptance and commitment training side of things um, Amanda went into clinical practice, but I stayed very much from on, on the academic side. So much more so involved in sort of theoretical work around around RFT. Um, just I'm based in Dublin, so I'm a psychology professor in the National College of Ireland in Dublin. Um, I teach undergrad psychology, um, but I also supervise research with the National College of Ireland and with Trinity College Dublin in behaviour analysis. Um, and I'm also the chair of the Division of Behaviour Analysis in Ireland. Um, so like Amanda said, like we did our undergrad and we did our doctorates together, um, you know, under the supervision of Yvonne Dark Barnes Holmes, which was, was, you know, obviously gave us that introduction into the area. Um, and I continue to do some uh, to do quite a bit of work, actually, with with Dermot Barnes Holmes. So really still focusing on sort of advancements in RFT. But it was it was just wonderful to have an opportunity to be able to write this paper with Amanda. Do you guys do uh, much research together? This was our first publication together. We we were it was such a long time coming, and we just said we got to do this. We have to make this work, so we did. <laughs> That's awesome. What what drew you to this particular topic, to this particular paper? I know you've both been heavily involved with RFT and and act to a certain degree, but why this topic? Why is this important to talk about? Um, I think it was definitely me saying to Michelle, oh my goodness, we have to, we have to produce something that helps behavior behavior analysts who are on the ground in the field doing clinical practice, be able to access relational frame theory a bit more easily and to be able to understand how important understand, how important understanding relational frame theory is to being able to figure out more complex behavioral and you know verbal issues in their clients, I you know when I when I moved to um, Colorado and I started working at Firefly, I remember I did a presentation on relational frame theory within my first couple of weeks, and one somebody commented afterwards and said, "I didn't have a clue what she was talking about, but her voice sounded awesome." <laughs> And it's kind of continued, you know, it's surprising to me that in 10 years, there hasn't been more, you know, more accessibility to how important relational frame theory is in figuring out more advanced behavioral and, and, and verbal issues in our clients. So, yeah, I pretty much roped Michelle into this. <laughs> Gladly, yeah. And I think as well, like, because I stayed in the academic side of it, I'm still, you know, nerding it up, writing papers or whatever. But Amanda is actually getting to see, you know, in practice, how beneficial all of that training has been in her ability to work with clients and to be able to identify those indirect acting contingencies and so on. So I think, you know, from that perspective, Amanda certainly did, you know, really pushed us to do it. But, 
you know, I, I probably brought them more, have an experience with writing papers, but it really was. I mean, it's Amanda's paper. I just jumped on for the ride. It's <laughs> not true. <laughs> well, it, it's a great balance of, of interest, it sounds like, across the two of you. And I'm excited to talk about sort of the, the, the primary components of this paper, but I want to do maybe a quick little aside of, of something in the paper, and it's in a lot of the papers within this special issue, which is the distinction of acceptance and commitment training, or the acronym ACT little r, rather than what many people may have heard of as acceptance and commitment therapy. Could you talk about the distinction between those two terms? Yeah, I think the distinction is important to all of the, the disciplines that work with acceptance and commitment in general, right? I think that, you know, the um, there's acceptance and commitment therapy has been around for such a long time and it's very established. There's so much research back in its effectiveness um, with such a wide variety of populations. And then, you know, I suppose if you kind of start looking at, at the research, it's behavior analysts were like, wow, this is something that could be really powerful and really valuable. But the application of it is just, it just can't be the same as it is, you know, as the, the way that you would apply classic acceptance and commitment therapy. And I think behavior analysts are very rightly concerned about scope of practice and scope of competence. And that's a huge piece of that no behavior analyst is going to say I'm a counseling psychologist or I'm a therapist. So the distinction is an important one. And, you know, it has been around for quite a long time, um, but much more commonly, you know, quite recently. And especially, you know, you start to see the behavior analysis and practice, especially the special issues, the emergency series, things like that. And you start to see the distinction. But for us, it, well, it was an important distinction to make because we don't want that scope of practice and scope of competence piece is so important. So I think that that's why the, the distinction is, is crucial. That's helpful. And I think I have somewhat of a interesting history with acceptance and commitment therapy because my, my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, is a clinician who primarily practices acceptance and commitment therapy. Now we got our degrees from at the same school. She was in the clinical program. I was in the behavior analysis program. And so I've seen a lot of the conceptualizations secondhand and I've, and I've done, you know, a little bit of perusal on that topic myself for funsies, I suppose, but looking at what she does is very much different than what I do or what I train my students to do. Nevertheless, there is that sort of conceptual framework that may have a lot of utility within sort of standard behavior analytic practice and, and uh, sort of helpful conceptualizations within that. And I think that's largely what your paper is highlighting. So your purpose of your paper is specifically to, to outline the utility of what I'm going to call ACT, by the way, in the paper, again, it's written as ACT little r, um, but I'm just going to, for simplicity's sake, to say ACT but looking at the utility of ACT within ABA settings. And one of the first important components or, or uses for ACT within ABA that you highlight is in considerations of thoughts as behaviors. Can you talk about why that's so important and, and how that applies to behavior analysis? 
Yeah, I mean, I can take that one. Um, so we really wanted to start with that rationale around considering thoughts as behaviours, because, you know, complex behaviour can be so influenced by our, our covert verbal behaviour or our thoughts, you know, something that's so indirect. And, you know, when we think about this, even from a logical point of view, like so much of what we do and how we act and how we behave is influenced by our internal dialogue. I mean, like who would want anyone peering inside their heads, you know? Um, but but so much of the stuff that's in there influences what we do and how we behave. So it was really Amanda who had been working with some clients that started to observe this, that if we're only focusing on what we can, we can hear or see, so those direct acting contingencies, we're really limiting ourselves and you know, in, and it actually it's one of those things that's inviting criticisms from some people in the autistic community in, you know, oh, behavior analysis only considers, you know, observable verbal behavior. But in actual fact, we're saying, no, it is so important to think about and consider thoughts as behavior. And, you know, even Skinner wrote about the importance of this as well. So really adopting that sort of RFT analysis of verbal behavior and considering the importance of covert behavior facilitates a pathway for behavior analysts to be able to to support people in overcoming greater difficulties and um, I think Amanda do you want to come in there and, and sort of expand on that a little bit more and from your experience yeah I think that you know I think that sometimes behavior analysts shy away from shy away from an, like a further analysis where it is you know we've we've always been taught observable measurable right and the, you know, one of the, the reasons why we were so unbelievably passionate about this is that we want, we want people to, to be successful. And ultimately, we want to make meaningful differences for our clients that, you know, that, that's values driven for them and is something that, that we can say, I feel confident in addressing issues with individuals who are more verbally complex than I might be used to, right? And in, in the day-to-day, -day, you know, working with clients and behavior analysts, sometimes I would have to make a decision and say, you know, there's a, this client, it might be an older client, very verbally sophisticated. And I might have to say, there's only maybe one or two behavior analysts that I could actually pair with this person because there are scope of competence issues when it comes to addressing higher verbal behavior, right? Um, so that's why this was so important and thinking about covert verbal behavior and thinking about thoughts as behavior is the first step. And Michelle and I wanted to make this really clear that this paper was to say, hey, you can, you can start to think about this. You, you know, it is really important for you to, to be able to, you know, I think sometimes you you, you look at the, all the contextual variables that can occur and you're looking at a behavior and you're like, okay, I think I have, you know, several functions nailed down, but I also know there's contextual variables outside of that that I can't necessarily see and measure, but I know are maintaining variables. And our point was, you know, I should be able to track that back in terms of a verbal behavior analysis. And that's what relational frame theory affords us. It literally affords us the ability to say, I'm looking at a situation, I'm hypothesizing maintaining variables, and I can use what I know about relational frame theory and the transfer of stimulus function to 
at the very least hypothesize what processes are going on here and what might contribute to this to maintaining this problem behavior right uh, thank you i think you guys hit on so many important components of that i think starting with michelle's comment about skinner really being the one who initially specified that private events and, and, and thoughts are behavior and that those are important in a behavioral conceptualization of what's happening. I think it's, you know, somewhat funny, somewhat disconcerting that a lot of behavior analysts seem to forget that and to ignore those important foundations of our field, you know, that ultimately uh, uh, to be a radical behaviorist, you do have to consider the entire organism, look at their private behavior as well as the public behavior. I also appreciated the, the piece about the verbal complexity, right? For the clients who have sort of higher level verbal skills than, than what many behavior analysts may experience, there's a, a specific competency that's gonna be required to be able to work with individuals like that. And potentially something like an RFT framework will help, uh, I, help them identify uh, variables that may be related to, you know, skill deficits and behaviors that would need to increase or potentially decrease. Now, within the RFT framework of, of the understanding of, of behavior, it, that is somewhat separate from acceptance and commitment therapy, right? And so beginning of your paper, you're talking a little bit about ultimately how the RFT conceptualization will help us understand uh, private events better. And then you add in the acceptance and commitment therapy with a little bit more specific application. Am I understanding the distinction between those two? Um, kind of, but I, I would disagree that they're two separate entities. I think the reason, you know, we, we wanted to create a flow from one to the other, because as you read through, so you have the, the core processes, and that's a framework for you to be able to begin to think about potential maintaining variables. But you can't, under, you know, we, our argument here is that to be able to truly understand where to go or to be able to, again, track back from, from your analysis of a maintaining variable, you still have to have an understanding of the variables that actually got you there. And you can't have an understanding of the variables that got you there unless you have an understanding of what we spoke about with relational frame theory. And for Michelle and I, it's, you know, you know, when you start being, being trained in behavior analysis and you get to a point and it's like you have that light bulb moment and you start to see everything in contingencies. You start to see everything in, you know, preventative measures and consequences and maintaining variables. And that's how we feel about relational frame theory. You get to a point and the light bulb comes on and you start seeing, even in your own behavior, you start seeing everything in terms of transformation of stimulus functions and relational frames and I'm dialectic framing and I'm looking at you in relation to me and things like that. And that type of understanding we feel is important as you move forward through the complexities and start to apply something like acceptance and commitment training to your clients. 
I think as well, just to add to that, I mean, I think me and Amanda maybe have a unique perspective as well. I mean, Amanda, you know, we have to remember that we were so lucky and that we we were so immersed in RFT first. And we almost learned that first before we started to learn more about ACT. So I think we have that unique perspective where it's it's difficult for us to be able to separate the two because we've never we never learned them as two separate things. We learned them as being so essential to each other. I think for other people, if somebody has learned a lot about ACT and then needs to go and, and kind of learn more about RFT, that could be a little bit more of a difficult learning journey or experience. But I completely agree with what Amanda has said here in that once you, it, it takes quite a bit of reading to, to get your head around relational framing and everything to do with RFT. But once that light bulb goes off, you will see everything in terms of relating, you know, you're, you, everything that we do. I teach my interest is around behavioral gerontology and I teach a bit around brain health and cognitive function and I also teach a little bit around um, and develop child development and relational framing is so important for each of those things as well like I see how important it is for complex cognitive functioning for executive function for the development of language I look at my little boys and I see them starting to relate relations and it fascinates me and so from that point of view like when you start to try to conduct an analysis of complex behavior, it's so helpful to be able to think about what way is that person relating stimuli? How is the relationship between those stimuli influencing how the person responds in a given moment? And how is the relationship between those stimuli influencing the transformation of functions from one stimulus to another? And and, and really that's what's driving some of this complex behavior um, that Amanda was talking about. Yeah, and on top of that, it's, you know, it's thinking about what there's, there's so many aspects to relational frame theory. And to what Michelle said, we were extremely lucky with our path of education. And it does take years and years and years. I mean, take it from us. We, we wrote pieces on, on undergrad level and we were like, we still don't really understand this, you know? <laughs> um, and that's why we we were very cognizant when we were writing this paper to take the perspective of the reader so we specifically trimmed down we said we sat for a long time and said what do you have what what do we feel that you have to know about relational frame theory and we cut out so much i mean if you read you know read read the rft book it's like we missed a lot we we struggled back and forth about whether to include or not include an awful lot of things and we trimmed it down to derived and arbitrarily applicable relational respondent, mutual entailment, combinatorial entailment, and then ultimately transformation of stimulus function. So we, we were like, in terms of from a, from, a, from a behavior analyst perspective coming into this, maybe you can, you could definitely take the time and read the book or whatever, but if you really want to get down to it, just take these concepts. And these concepts can take you a really long way. Um, because it, it's not the easiest to digest. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, and I did appreciate in the paper the, that you you did kind of simplify things, or at least for someone who may be new to the topic, you, you gave them enough that I think, you know, in general, it's sort of bite-sized pieces, right? Like you said, throwing every term in the RFT book out in an in a article, it's probably going to be quite overwhelming. 
I don't want to get too out of sync with, with, with our structure here, but you did mention those three important terms, and this may be a good point in the, the, the conversation to, to talk about those and to talk about why they're so central to this conceptualization. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so I might come in there. I, I guess, you know, it's just important to understand even the definitions of these. And, and we did add practical examples in the paper as well, just to help people to understand. Because I think sometimes, you know, some of the examples, it's like if A equals B, you know, it's sometimes it's a little bit more helpful if you have a more concrete example. Uh, so with arbitrarily applicable relational responding, it does sound quite daunting but really all it is like if you if you break it up so with relational responding it's just responding to a relationship between anything so you know Cody you might have said oh Amanda and Michelle's voices sound quite similar you're engaging in relational responding because you're you're comparing two things when you make any kind of a comparison that's relational responding right something that's you know if it's if it's non-arbitrary it's you're you're looking at a relationship um, based on physical properties so you know uh, Cody is taller than Amanda that's that's non-arbitrary but when we start to to make comparisons using like complex language and something it's arbitrarily applicable if it's arbitrary it's like saying um Amanda was the bigger person for walking away from the argument we're not talking about physical size and I'm not suggesting she argued with you either Cody <laughs> Um, but but this is what I mean by arbitrary. So we know because of our, our, our experience with language, what that means. And um, so that's basically arbitrarily applicable relational responding right there. And, and the derived piece, the derivation piece is just this fascinating thing that we see with humans where we just have this natural ability to know things. So uh, there's a really nice meme out there, an RFT kind of meme, and it says if A equals B and B equals C, you do the math. You know, we know what if, if I tell you the relationship, you know, if let's say I'm Amanda's sister and we don't have another sister, but let's say Helen is my sister. You know, what's Helen to Amanda? You know the relationship. I haven't told you directly the relationship between those two. I've told you that Amanda, that I'm Amanda's sister and Helen is my sister. But we now know that Amanda and Helen are sisters. We were able to derive that. And this is the really fascinating thing about the human mind so that's the so there you are there's derived and arbitrarily applicable relational responding explained in like oh, two minutes or something but with the transformation of stimulus function then this is so important to what we're, what we were trying to get at with the paper because this is really about how you know, emotions can travel through words you know words are a vehicle for emotion and our experiences so if we relate to things as being similar we can then you know that relationship can make you think the same way about something let me give you an example here so let's say for example um somebody thinks amanda is a good person okay and then they meet me and they treat me with kindness too because the feelings of fondness about amanda could transfer over to me just because i'm in a frame of sameness or coordination with her so People might say, oh, I, I like Amanda, so I presume I'm going to like Michelle too because they're twins, right? And they're really similar. Well, that's just that transformation of stimulus function where the, the, the functions of Amanda transform over to me because we're in that, that frame of coordination or in that frame of sameness. So uh, trying to think about concrete examples of those sorts of things 
and, and thinking about multiple exemplars of those can really help people to grasp some of that technical language. And then that can bring you a step further to really understanding what we're, we're trying to get at in the paper. And I think on top of that as well is the really important piece that this is all under contextual behavioral science, right? So we're talking about, when we're talking about the transformation of stimulus functions and relating relations, you're, you have to think about context because your history, your culture, your upbringing, your background, all of those things are going to play into how you relate relations. So if, you know, the, I think the culture piece is a really important piece. And I know behavior analysis in general is doing a really good job of focusing really heavily on cultural competence, trauma-informed care, things like that. But I think it's important that when you go into this analysis that you, you're really considering all of the contextual variables that can come together to dictate how somebody relates relations because how one person relates relations is not gonna be the same as how somebody else relates relations. An extremely helpful framework that you've, you've built by describing those important concepts that are core to an RFT framework. And I, and I honestly, I think I could have, you know, a two or three hour conversation about that. That's not the entire scope of your paper. So I'm going to sort of check myself and, and make sure that I'm covering everything, all the important information you, you talked about in your paper. And so I'm going to segue us into looking at how some of these concepts and terms then directly apply to things that the behavior analysts may be doing or, or concerned with. And so the next section of your paper focuses on ACT and ABA and talking about functional assessment and treatment. Could you talk about how all of this relates? Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's important to mention here that the paper, again, was to start thinking about what could potentially be a maintaining variable of problem behavior. We were very, very, you know, um, just very aware of the fact that there's a lot of progress being made currently in terms of actual functional analysis of verbal behavior, so verbal FAs. Um, you know, I'm again was lucky enough to be part of a, a research lab um, started by Dr. Tom Sabo, Jonathan Tarbox, and um, Larissa Shepherd is leading that, that group now, and she's a wonderful behavior analyst here in Colorado and a lot of the work that they're doing is literally around that. Like how can a behavior analyst say, like we have to be able to actually do a proper functional, functional analysis of maintaining variables or, you know, functions of behavior. And I think that, you know, you think about, you think about the old theoretical um, papers that were put out by relational frame theory. And then, you know, there was a, very quickly, there was, in, in your mind, you're like very quickly, there was tons and tons of data and now there's just so much data and research. And I think that sometimes in the field, we get a little bit um, impatient and we say, here's the theories, where's the data? And it's like, I promise there's a ton of people working on the data. It just hasn't quite been published yet. And Michelle and I got checked a little bit on our first draft of the paper that we submitted because we wanted to say, hey, this work is being done. But rightly so the reviewers were like you can't really talk about something that hasn't been published yet so um so I think it's important to make that point 
you know, we're not, we're not implying that what we've done here is a functional analysis of verbal behavior. We're just saying this is a framework for behavior analysts to start thinking about that. But the applicability of this to behavior analysts and what they do every day, again, it was actually a client of mine that I worked with. And it just for, for a few years, it was just so apparent to me. So essentially some of it, I, I wrote um, some of his examples in the paper, but he would um, stay, just stay at home, would never leave his house. And he had a long history of um, aversive interactions with dogs. And before I ever met him, that transferred to babies. And you will definitely see lots of examples that go around that in the paper. By the time I started working with this client, those relations had already been very firmly established. You know, he, by the time I started working with him, he was in his later teens and it had gotten, it got to a point where he was avoiding, he was avoiding going outside. Right. So there was observable, measurable behavior. I was like, I can see that he's avoiding going outside. I know that he finds, he thinks the sound of dogs barking or babies crying, he, he absolutely doesn't like. And if, we are in a restaurant and he hears that he will ask to leave. Um, so, I, you know, there was a lot that I could do in terms of like, if we're in a restaurant, I can teach you how to say, can we please leave instead of engaging in problem behavior, but it didn't get me far enough, you know, and it, it really started to come down to that analysis of the verbal behavior piece, because when he was at home and was refusing to leave home, it was because he was avoiding the potential for, or even, even more so in his case, it was avoiding going outside because if he went outside, he would actually just think about it. And thinking about it was enough to create this extremely aversive reaction. So the thought itself was aversive enough for him to engage in avoidance behaviors. And, you know, through when we go through the um, the, the six act processes, you start to see that you can have that understanding that you know that maybe there's more going on in terms of the maintaining variables of the problem behavior, and it's really helpful to have a label to label something that it could possibly be tied back to in terms of some kind of potential solution, right? So if we're talking, if we look at a values-based approach, and again, to clarify, I think everything every behavior analyst should do should be values-based. Um, it should be, what does the client want? Not what do we want? So you look at a values-based approach and you think, you know, and it's, it's, we started to make progress. It was like, what do you want? What is it that you want? And then literally verbally tying, because we're talking about verbally sophisticated clients, and then you just, you, you can actually create a relation. So I said, you, if you do this, this can help you. So if you leave your house, this can help you take a step further and maybe get a job or go out to dinner with your family. So I literally created a relational frame between the behavior that he that I wanted him to engage in and something that he really wanted, so like a value of his. Um, 
And I think that as you go through, you can kind of see how you can apply. And that was really important. We wanted this to be applied, how you can literally apply this knowledge in a way that you can be helpful to your client, which is the bottom line, right? Yeah, that's extremely, extremely helpful to, to understand. This is really, really, really informative so far. Within talking about the, the utility of not only understanding, but potentially intervening uh, on the issues our clients are likely going to experience, you talk about some of the core ACT processes and how those might relate to the application of behavior analysis. Could, could you talk about uh, them? And I suppose we could kind of go through one by one looking or beginning with the lack of values versus values. Yeah, so, you know, again, you think about, if you think, of, if you think about yourself and why you engage in certain behaviors and when it comes down to it, we do things to get us things that we care about, or, you know, you, you do, there's, there's a purpose behind what you do. And I think that's a valuable framework to go into when you're starting a client, a client relationship to say, you know, maybe it's the, the, the family, the parent, the extended, um, the extended family, um, you know, caregivers, things like that. Maybe it's the client themselves. And you're always very careful to make sure that you're, you know, you're engaging in assent-based practices and you're you're really trying to get to the core of what the client wants but there can be situations when you're engaging with with a client and it's just not clear their why isn't clear and you know I've definitely had cases where a client says that they want something because their parents said that they wanted that thing and that's not the same you know, so sometimes you have to take a step back and even work with your client to clarify because the values piece is very powerful in that you can start to make relations that bring the person closer to that thing. And what you're trying to do is have them engage in adaptive behaviors. And those adaptive behaviors can be tied directly by virtue of you know, relational framing to that thing that they really care about. So I think the values piece is is important. I think sometimes where it becomes a little bit complicated is a lot of these things intertwine. So you look at one thing and you're like, well, you know, that also kind of includes values. And you could always say everything kind of includes values. But ultimately, our aim was to break it up and give practical examples. And some of actually a lot of the examples that we use were real life examples. We didn't make up a whole lot when it came to this paper at all. And that tells you that there's applicability here. Can I just add there as well that that table that Amanda wrote out, I mean, that to me was just a work of art because I, you know, and, and can I say as well that she poured over it for so long and she really doubted it and said, oh, Michelle, it's terrible. Maybe we shouldn't include it. But when I look at it now, I think, you know, for anybody who wants to try to understand how, you know, the applicability piece and how this can be applied within within their work, I think, you know, even if you don't read the paper, just look at the table and it will tell you so much about what you need to know about the implementation of this in practical work. Yeah, I think the frequent listeners of Babcast will know that I'm always a big enthusiast about tables and figures. And so 
Uh, I would have plugged it uh, myself, but I'm glad you brought it up now because, yeah, there is a really helpful table within the manuscript. If you, you know, do nothing other than download the, the paper and look at the, the table, it will be very helpful in understanding how all this fits together and applies. Going back to the, the values piece, I, I like your description of values and, and tying it into a scent-based practice. And I think as you were talking, I was thinking, I think a lot of behavior analysts do try to target, you know, values and, and help their clients work toward their values, whether it's they frame it as goal setting or potentially a scent-based practice or compassionate care or what have you. I think a lot of those are getting at tapping into our clients' values, making sure that we're, we're helping them work toward their values. And in the case where you talked about the, the client maybe not really having developed values that they're at least able to articulate is, is an interesting issue. And I, and, I, and I think what you talk about in the paper and what you've said here is helpful in figuring out, okay, well, if you are in that situation, you know, how do you, or where do you go from there, essentially? Yeah, and I think that some behavior analysts listening might say, well, that's just reinforcers, Amanda. And I understand that. But when we're talking, we're talking about higher, higher level verbal processes, not working for access to something that's a physical thing, right? So I think just a, my, my star beside everything I say is that we are talking about things that are arbitrary. So a value is something that's a verbally, it's verbally constructed. I want to be a good mother. That's a verbal construction based on, and, and think about the contextual nature of, the, of what we're talking about. Good mother, quote unquote, is different depending on your background, your history, all of those things, right? Um, so yeah, the values piece is, is definitely an important piece of that. I find myself wanting to go down all these rabbit holes because I think all this is so fascinating. Again, I'm going to keep us moving along a little bit because I do want to talk about the, the other core processes. So the next one you talk about is experiential avoidance versus acceptance. Can you talk about that? Potentially my favorite one. <laughs> Oh my goodness, experiential avoidance. We, it's again with that light bulb moment, I, I tacked myself when I engage in experiential avoidance. I'm like, oh, there I go again, experiential avoidance. I think experiential avoidance is, you know, it's a it's a great, it's a great label to be able to name something that we know that we know that our clients do, that we know that we do. And it is essentially avoiding, you know, avoiding feeling something so what I what I described earlier about my client that was experience he's, you know he's engaging in experiential avoidance he wants to avoid the thought of something because it creates this aversive condition right and crucially within these analysis what what you're saying is is that we're always going to you know we're always going to have to feel bad about something right you know we we're going to feel guilty or annoyed or all of those things and it's yes but or rather yes and yes you are going to feel this and that's okay and you can take meaningful steps 
in so you can you can behave you can engage in behaviors that still are adaptive and still get you towards what you want to do and that's the acceptance piece right so experiential avoidance so what we're saying like versus acceptance it's accepting that yes you're going to feel bad about something and you can do the thing that gets you closer to that thing that you care about and I think that that's a, that's definitely a tough it's a tough sell for our clients <laughs> because you're trying to say feel the fear and do it anyway and that's essentially what you know when I when I would work with clients and you know I don't have the opportunity to do that nearly as much anymore unfortunately but it is you can even say it like that feel the fear and do it anyway and I think that applies to all of us really um so that that piece is so important because everybody experiences that everybody so that's why experiential avoidance is my favorite one to talk about because it's so applicable to everybody and everybody can relate to that Certainly. I'm, I'm sort of doing a, a post-hoc analysis of, of clients that I've worked with in the past. And I've done a lot of stuff with adults in group homes. And I, I think I've seen a lot of, a lot of behaviors and, and verbal behavior around what I think would probably be you know, labeled as experiential avoidance and, and seeing a lot of problem behaviors around that. Like you said, it's not necessarily the the task that they may or may not find averse of it's it's the it's the potential thoughts or feelings that would come about from that so uh, I had a client who was refusing to take showers and uh, after some evaluation and an assessment of what was happening there found out that ultimately she didn't like taking showers because and when I say don't like taking showers, I mean, she hadn't showered in like six months and she was older and she had issues with, uh, continence and, and so she urinate and defecate and getting that cleaned up. was very difficult. And, and most of the reason, or at least the reason she seemed to, to not want to be taking showers is she was extremely concerned about water conservation, which is, you know, on one hand, it's a great thing, right? Like we, it is good to be concerned about water conservation, uh, but <laughs> we also need to make sure, you know, our bodies are healthy and, and she was getting risk of infection and all sorts of things. Right. And so it's like, you know, she didn't want to take a shower because of the, as you were saying, the guilt associated while we're wasting water, et cetera. And, and ultimately figuring out how can, how can we have both, right? How can we live in the value and, and prioritize the value of conserving water, but also make sure we're, we're doing things we need to, to, to make sure we're living a healthy lifestyle and everything like that. I love that example. And you've made me think about the next part, which was fusion versus diffusion. So conceptually, perhaps with that client, and this is why there's com it's complicated because they're all intertwined. And you obviously would have to do a, a deeper verbal analysis, but there's the potential that at some point in time, there was a rule formed where, you know, wasting water is bad, relational frame theory. Um, so relating relations along, <laughs> along an uh, a frame of opposition, right? Um, so, so waste and water is bad. Taking showers wastes water. Therefore, my, the rule in my head is if I take a shower, it's bad because I'm wasting water. And 
fusion versus diffusion really looks at overly rigid adherence to verbally constructed rules. So you verbally constructed a rule because of relational frame theory, and you can track again, but this is why this is so important. And to, to our earlier point, these are absolutely intertwined concepts. I can literally take the rigid adherence to the rule, track back the processes in terms of relational framing that created that rule in the first place, and then try and address at the level of creation what the issue is. Or I could just say, you know, maybe we'll work on being more flexible around rule following. So there's, I mean, you could you could go the whole extreme verbal analysis and break it down step by step, or you could <laughs> you could just address it from an overly rigid rule following. Um, and I think the example that that we mentioned in the paper was the the, the client who. I think that it was um, the rule was that this um, I'm you know I'm autistic so I'll never get a job because the system is rigged, and I think that's a very real um, a very real thought for a lot of our clients. You know we're at Firefly here we have adult groups and we're lucky enough to be able to work with adults, and many of the adults that we work with are unemployed, and some of the time some of the things you know it's like well what why should I bother trying because. I'm never going to get a job anyway because the system is rigged, you know, and that's where that example came from, too. So um, and then to go on from that, you know, we, we definitely tried to, to have a flow to go on from that. There is a, dis a very distinct difference between fusion and self as content versus self as context, even though it sounds kind of similar, because self as context versus self as content involves rules but it's more so a rule about how you think about yourself and i very clearly remember the the example that we wrote in this because it was um a colleague of both of ours actually he he lives in, and works in canada and he and i spoke about this client and the example written in the paper is exactly what happened so he was working with the client the client is you know very very smart very um, academically successful um top of his class in math then went to college and all of a sudden was surrounded by all of these people that were in a math course so all of these people were incredibly adept at math right that's what they were doing and you know through time and analysis and you know the the behavior analyst in question did a phenomenal job of, of you know exhausting every single direct contingency to begin with which is what you should absolutely do too um and he, he was just like i'm kind of at the point where i i don't know what else i can do in terms of contingencies to address his avoidance of his homework his texts and even going into college so we started to break down meet let's look at this from a verbal behavior perspective let's look at this from a relate relational framing perspective and from the framework of acceptance and commitment therapy or training and what we came to was, and he, again, it, with a verbal analysis, the client said, well, I'm the smart one. I've always been the smart one. And like, I was top of my class. I was the, 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 the math guy. They used to call me the math guy. And now I'm not that anymore. So he was, he was avoiding engaging in going to college and engaging even in a textbook because it, it shifted how he saw himself. It shifted him out of his sense of self 
So he was so tied to that the kind of self as content. So his entire identity was around being the smart one. And it got to a point where it was problematic because you're in a different context and the context is not, you're not the smart one anymore. You're with peers who are, you know, just as able as you are. And then that's where it's the versus self as context, right? So if with self as context, you shift your identity based on the contextual variables that are around you. And I think that's really important even, and I think about that myself too. I mean, um, when I'm in, in work, I'm one Amanda. When I'm at home, I'm another Amanda. When I'm with my friends, I'm a different Amanda. When I'm with my friends, you know what I mean? So there's there's contextual variables that help you shift who you are in a certain situation. And by, by virtue of the features, you know, often common features in terms of repetitive um, restrictive behaviors in the autism population I think sometimes we do see a lot of this um, rigid rule following either when it comes to rigid adherence to verbally constructed rules or rigid adherence to verbally constructed sense of self that that is, that is so helpful and you've done a nice job of leading us through many of these core processes doing my job for me. So thank you for doing that. It makes my it makes this easy for me. That that brings us right to the lack of present moment awareness versus present moment awareness. Am I allowed to have two favorites? <laughs> or multiple favorites? This one is is really important. And, and again, I think that Michelle and I actually talk about this, you know, when when we're together, we don't get to see each other as much as we would like to, but when we're together, we'll even say things like, no, like we have to be in the present moment. Don't think about anything else. It's just you and I, let's sit here in this moment and appreciate us being physically together because that's such a, it's such an important special thing for us, you know? Um, so the present moment awareness, it's important and, and present moment awareness ties very strongly to values, I think, maybe even more so than the other concepts because if you think about the, if you think about, so let's say you're doing parent training and you think about the, the parent has identified that they really want to be a good mother, but they feel like there's all these things getting in the way. And then you can tie that to when you're having, when you have 20 minutes with your kid, be there, you know, try and be present in that moment and not think about all of the things that you should have done. We are, humans are incredible at either rehashing the past or living mentally in a future that hasn't even happened yet and I do that myself I lie in bed and I think about the what ifs of my week or year and I have to go there I go again I'm <laughs> I'm mentally living in a future that hasn't even happened yet and we do it all the time and I think that you know what one thing we haven't mentioned is is that these concepts are really applicable when you think about parent training caregiver training you know, training with individuals or, you know, working with individuals who are caregivers, because this one particularly speaks to me in terms of the, the perspective of the perspective of a caregiver. Um, I mean, and a client, you know, my client that I'm talking about the, with the fear of dogs and babies, he consistently lives in past and future. It's it's all, you know, he's been gone from school for 10 years and he still talks about, well, when I was in school and it's like, but but what about now, the now, you know, and it, it is a hard one to shift. It really is because 
you know, thanks mind. That's what, we, that's what our mind will do. Just go back and forth. I was like, can we just be here? <laughs> I love that. That uh, I think there's, there's a lot of people talk. I think a lot of poets and writers have talked about this particular issue, right? Um, with present moment and, 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 and living in the past or living in the future and really trying to just be focused in the present. Uh, I think that in, across cultures, you see that, right? You see that in, in Zen Buddhism and, and other types of uh, practices. And I know that ACT is largely uh, influenced by some, some Buddhist practices. So that part makes a lot of sense. The, the last core process you talk about is committed action Ver, or lack of committed action versus committed action. Could you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I do want to jump back a little bit to the present moment awareness just for a second, because what you said about the, the link between this and, you know, you think about mindfulness and things like that. And I think once you, when you start to, to go down the route of looking into acceptance and commitment-based practices, mindfulness comes up. I think as a behavior analyst, what you want to do is understand what is what the process what is happening in that process so when I do lie in bed at night and put on my mindfulness you know my mindfulness meditation I'm also considering the fact that what's happening verbally is is that I'm not engaging in you know arbitrarily applicable relational respondent essentially in terms of making creating relationships between things that haven't hasn't haven't even happened along planes that, that don't exist you know so I think I think it, it's it's important to to understand the utility that mindfulness has as it relates to present moment awareness but for behavior analysts we should be thinking about the verbal processes absolutely yeah that, that that's helpful and then did you want to talk about the committed action Sure. Um, so yeah, um, lack of committed action versus committed action is this is as you know as behavior analytic as we as we can get in terms of observable measurable behaviors. I think any behavior analyst will read this and go, oh yeah, this one I've got <laughs> because it is having your client engage in actual steps towards what it is that they care about and you know it's it's relatively simplified obviously in terms of you're either not going to engage in actions in actual actions towards what it is that you want to do or you are um, and I think you know I'm, I'm currently working with someone and the, the the committed action piece can look can look very unrelated to what it is that that the end goal is but ultimately, if you tie an action, you can say, I'm going to sit down at my desk, you know, once a day, it doesn't even matter what the duration is, but I'm going to commit to doing that one thing. The end goal is that I'm actually going to enroll and go to college. This seems like, you know, in behavior analysis, you're like breaking things down into things that are achievable, right? And this is achievable. And that, that ties into assent and values-based practices too, because it's constantly checking with him. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Number one. And number two, what's attainable for you? I'm not going to tell you what you have to do. I want you to tell me what you think is attainable. And to start off with it was, I think I can make it there. I'm not going to promise an amount of time. And I was like, I don't care about an amount of time. Step one, get there. We can work on that after. That, that's really helpful. And, and I think tying that together and, and thinking about one of the 
case examples you talked about with a client who sounds like wanted to have a job, wanted to have an occupation, but was struggling to do so. I've certainly encountered a few clients uh, with that sort of profile and, and thinking about, okay, well, you, you want a job, but we're going to have to potentially, you know, set some steps of maybe developing skills or whatever it may be to get toward ultimately the end goal. And I think that's a pretty obvious application and I think a comfortable application for behavior analysts when they're thinking about, you know, how can I take these particular concepts? I mean, that's easy. I think a lot of behavior analysts, I imagine, are doing that, uh, maybe not necessarily uh, tacting it as such, but certainly doing related activities. And I think this can this also lends itself to thinking about when we talk about more complex verbal processes, committed action could be, you know, three times this week, I noticed that I was living in the past and I consciously made an effort to be present in the moment and spend time with my child, for example. So we're not just, so that's not observable, but that still fits into what we're talking about. And that's why this is applicable within the framework of what we're discussing. Any other final thoughts or comments on the, the ACT core processes? Michelle? <laughs> No, I mean, I think you've really, really nicely covered everything there. I think maybe, Michelle, what we might want to just touch on is that we, again, we understood, we, we wrote this before we started outlining the core processes, but it was important for us to, to acknowledge that there's been a lot of debate around the core processes. And we, coming from, you know, our history, especially, we felt that it was important to say we completely understand that there's a lot of discussion around the use or lack of use of core processes within behavior analysis. That's a really important thing to acknowledge. All we're, we're, we're Switzerland here, <laughs> we're neutral. But all we're saying is, is that from the perspective of a practicing behavior analyst, this is helpful. You know, you can agree or disagree. And, you know, maybe if if we went down multiple rabbit holes, even I might disagree in terms of, you know, oversimplifying the processes, but how do you get, how do you, how do you start the conversation if you can't, if you can't present something that people can grasp? And that's ultimately why we decided to, to have the paper in this format, because we went back and forth on that a lot. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate the format you took, I think. As someone who, you know, primarily trains master's level clinicians and, and, you know, ultimately consults with a lot of master's level clinicians, it's nice to find these little sort of bite-sized chunks of conceptual foundations. Uh, you know, I don't know that there are many practicing clinicians out there that are going to commit the time needed to read a RFT book and probably multiple additional resources. And if there are those out there that are interested in that, that's awesome. And I imagine you guys would recommend doing so. But for those who are, you know, trying to do this within a, maybe a more confined time frame, I think this paper was a great sort of translational piece of looking at the ACT and RFT conceptualizations 
and, and directly applying the behavior analysis. Because I'll be honest, my own personal experience in, in roughly understanding RFT and ACT and, and primarily seeing it as, as something my wife does as a, a clinician, when I first started getting exposed to some of the ideas around ACT being something that behavior analysts can do, my defenses came up and I went, whoa, 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 scope of competence. It wasn't until this paper and similar works that, I, that I've seen from other, you know, uh, great researchers like you mentioned, Jonathan Tarbox and others, that I started seeing, okay, it's not, it's not act as, you know, uh, I've traditionally understood it. It's looking at what are the conceptualizations around that and looking at how they can be embedded and utilized within sort of a traditional ABA practice. And this is a great paper to, to help bridge that gap, I think. So thank you. Just add there, um, you know, in, in you were saying about, you know, maybe if people are interested in RFT, maybe they might want to read the RFT book. But I do what I would recommend is that if somebody just wants a sort of a, a quick stop at, you know, a lot of the recent research, there's been a, a recent paper published in the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior. So JAB, obviously, is such an important flagship journal. And it was just published in January. Um, and it's Dermot Barnes Holmes and Colin Hart and they, they they're doing some excellent work around really analyzing the very specifics and dynamics of arbitrarily applicable relational responding and this paper that they have written summarizes all of the sort of conceptual and empirical advances over it, it's actually called relational frame theory 20 years on so it talks about so if people do want to get like a, a relatively quick read and catch up on everything from an RFT point of view and all of the new work that's being done in the area um, you know and, and really a lot of work that's being being promoted by kind of Colin and Dermot they're doing some great work here I would recommend just for, for reading that people would have a look at that paper in JAB. Thank you so much for that resource. So we'll definitely link to that in, in the show notes. And tying into that and, and starting to wrap up here, the last section of your paper talks about sort of resources within RFT and ACT. And that's an amazing resource. Any other resources or things that people who are interested in this topic should check out beyond, beyond that article? I mean, you have to say JCBS, like the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science, and then also behavior analysis and practice. I mean, I think this special issue I went through and the special issue is awesome. I love, it's so important to have a variety of perspectives and I think that this special issue with, you know, um, um, Dr. Sabo and Tarbox, but then also um, Dr. Sandals and Gould, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much important discussion here. And to be able to have a broad overview of what's happening, because this is a really exciting time in behavior analysis. You know, we, we think about how, how relational frame theory started to shift what, what we're capable of within the field of applied behavior analysis and behavior analysis in general. And, and, and that's where we're at here as well. There's so much work to do. And I'm, again, I'm so happy to say that I, you know, the lab that I mentioned earlier, they are, they're putting their research where their mouth is and they're putting the, the data is forthcoming. And what we need to do, you know, to, to refer to the point that um, Sandals et al made is, is, and, 
And the, the interesting thing is, is I was like, oh, that's why we wanted to say in our paper that this is actually happening, but we couldn't is yes, of course, as behavior analysts, yes, we we have to stay, we, we want to stay true to, you know, the decades and decades and decades of what we know is effective. We have all these tools in our toolbox. We do need to have a really good way of truly assessing function when it comes to verbal behavior. And we're on the cusp of you know, we'll look back and we'll be like, oh, you know, that article was 2020, that article was 2021, that one's 2022. And a five-year span will seem like nothing when you're looking back on it. But when you're living it, you're like, when is this publication going to come out, you know? Um, So I think just keeping an eye on those resources, I, there's, I mean, there, I, I wrote down, there's a lot of Facebook resources too. And I really, there's a lot of utility in terms of the, the Facebook groups. Um, so on Facebook, there is the Act for ABA Practitioners group on Facebook. Um, Evelyn Gould is one of the administrators and um, not just because she's from Ireland, but she's also incredible at everything she does. We love her. Um, and that, that group is amazing. Um, Mindful Behaviour and Action is on Facebook also. And honestly, even if you go through the Act for ABA Practitioners group, and you, uh, you can fall, maybe don't do it if you've got things to do because you will be on there for hours. There's so many resources. Um, so you can you can kind of start to like link to things that you're like, I think I can do that. There's so many trainings available. You know, I think one of the things um, in potentially, I'm trying to think it was a um, it was a study and it was a, um, a survey of behavior analysts. And essentially the survey said behavior analysts do they they now agree essentially that this is within their scope of practice. But many behavior analysts still don't feel as if it's within their own scope of competence and lack of accessibility to training programs is one of the problems. And again, that's something that's being worked on. We're just not quite there yet, but we're, it's an exciting time. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I appreciate the, the resources and sort of the perspective that this is new, right? Rome wasn't built overnight. And so, you know, with any luck, we're going to start seeing a lot more resources. It seems like there's a lot of really exciting things in the work that as a community, we're going to hopefully start getting access to soon. I I was just going to say, just keep an eye out for some of the conference papers as well, because, you know, at ABAI in Boston, ABAI in Dublin, there's some really exciting papers coming up um, and presentations, both from an RFT point of view and from the acceptance commitment training perspective. So, yeah, keep an eye on the conference programs also. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you both for the resources. Thank you both for coming on the show and and chatting. It's been a pleasure. It's been amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cody. We, we, we totally could have talked for hours more, but we won't put you through that. (laughs) Yeah, we absolutely could. I, I, I apologize because it sounded like my family were actually like rebuilding the house outside my door (laughs) for so much of that. So, um, yeah. I, I had to keep myself on me for quite a while, but Cody, thank you so much for the opportunity. And it's just been really nice to have an opportunity to talk about a paper that we put so much hard work into. Um, as I said, mostly Amanda, um, but yeah. Not was- true. <laughs> <laughs> it was a joint effort. Yeah. Well, thank you both for the hard work. Thank you so much, Cody. All right, before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes. 
and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.